Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Alan Cumming on baggage. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the biographies and memoirs, film, TV, and performing arts, or humor category for episode number 82 with Matthew McConaughey on Green Lights. Hey everybody, Matthew McConaughey here, talking green lights. You are listening to Trey Elling, Books on Pod, Green Lights. Hey, the red and yellow ones eventually turn green, so can we all go out there today, tomorrow, and the day after that, creating and catching more of them for ourselves and others. In the meantime, and all times, let's just keep living. Hello, readers. Alan Cumming is a Tony Award-winning actor of stage and screen, singer, activist, and writer. His newest book is titled Baggage, Tales from a Fully Packed Life. Alan, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Still alive. A little um, little tired. It's my launch party of my book last night and, you know, up early for the morning TV show thing. So I'm <laughs> I had a nap, so I'm bouncing back. This isn't your first book, or memoir for that matter. Are you still pretty satisfied with the reception Baggage is seeing so far? Yes, actually, I am very, uh, seems very positive. And uh, yeah, I'm very happy. And it's always it's always sort of difficult when you put something that's so personal out into the world. Um, but, you know, it gets easier the more you do it, as you say. But uh, no, I'm, I'm actually really I'm very pleased with the way it's being received so far. So what was your goal with this book? I mean, I think it was a lot to do with the reaction to my first memoir, uh, Not My Father's Son, which is a book I talked a lot about my um, childhood and my sort of abusive father and stuff like that. And I, I, you know, that was a lot to put into the world. And I was very scared about sort of changing the narrative of myself. But I felt there was also a rhetoric that especially in America, where people said, oh, Alan has recovered, Alan has over, overcome this, he has triumphed his, uh, you know, trauma in his past. And I, I sort of, I really liked the way that my talking about my past helped people sometimes confront theirs, but I didn't like that sort of rhetoric that I was over it and it was all finished somehow. So this book, in a way, was to sort of counter that and say, it's, it, it never disappears, it's always there. And everyone's got baggage, everyone's got, you know, trauma. You just manage it and you hopefully you understand it might you might be triggered at certain times as things you're going to have bad days but i think i actually think you know i'm what i <laughs> what i realized in the last couple of weeks of constantly talking about this <laughs> is that what i'm doing with this book is trying to normalize being a hot mess <laughs> so this book takes place mostly during your adulthood but you do talk a little bit about your adolescence. You actually passed the Scottish equivalent of high school at the age of 16, but you needed to be 17 in order to attend college, so you got a job as a junior editor at a publishing house. What was that like? Uh, kind of hilarious, because I was asked to do all these things that I was completely uh, ill-equipped to do. I, I, I worked in the fiction department, first of all, which was such fun, because I would answer the phone and say, hello, fiction which made me think that anything I said after that could be completely false. And indeed, I went on to, one of my jobs was I had to write the horoscopes for a newspaper, one of the newspapers that they had, the Dundee Evening Telegraph. And I <laughs> I was 16 years old and just completely making up horoscopes for people. Terrible, really. 
was there any one role that allowed you to realize that others saw you as a pretty good actor? Um, I know that when I sort of reala- I, I realized myself, I mean, I, I, I remember when I was little, it, it wasn't a role like, you know, when I was a sort of famous actor or anything. It was probably, you know, when I was at school and I realized that, oh, I seem to be able to do this better than other people. It was sort of the first thing I was any good at. So I sort of stuck to it. But I think actually there was a play I did in Edinburgh in, in, in like the in the 80s. And I was a professional. I was, you know, so I'd left drama school and everything. And it was then that I realized in the middle of this play, one matinee, I was like, oh, I see. That's what acting is. I've been getting it all wrong up till now. It's that just that was that was the moment I thought, oh, I can do this. It's just I, I was kind of I was you know I had the wrong end of the stick for a while. This book begins with you at the age of twenty nine, having been married for several years and actually trying to have a baby. Now you had a successful theater career at this time as well. So why were you in such a bad headspace, and what led you to changing your course here? Well, I think I was in a bad headspace because. I had a lot of the stuff that had happened to me when I was a little boy. I had um, not processed. I'd not. I'd not remembered. I think I'm really fascinated by how the mind does this. That you know, basically, the mind, my mind, my brain stopped me. It put away all these memories of these terrible things that were happening to me—the violence and abuse—because it was too much for my little boy to handle it was just it was it was too overwhelming so it kind of put it away and protected me from it and then when I was 29 I was trying to be a father I think you know when you when you do that you sort of start thinking about what kind of father will you be and what examples do you have of being a parent and and so then all these memories came back and that was it was like a deluge of traumatic stuff that I hadn't really encountered or processed and I you know it's kind of it happens and the people who've been abused were a little it's quite a common thing but when it's happening to you it's so intense and overwhelming and you're just really completely debilitated by it and it doesn't immediately happen as a sort of a spell where you're kind of you know I guess depressed or not able to function properly and then all of a sudden it started so that was why I mean that was and really it became impossible for me to sort of imagine staying in that relationship when I guess my wife didn't believe me uh, about the about the abusive stuff in my past and I understand she was just angry and wanted to hurt me and she was you know her, she was really hurting herself but it's that's a that's a big one because trust and being believed is such a huge part of anyone who's being abused starting to talk about it so it was it was kind of that was really the death knell I think you describe a period right around then, I think shortly after that. It was around late 94 into early 95 as, quote, a kaleidoscope of magical life-altering events began to engulf you. Very beautifully put there. Now, this actually included you confronting your dad for the abuse that he subjected you and your brother to as kids. How did that go? Well, the confrontation my dad, I mean... <laughs> I mean, it went well in that it was a very cathartic thing to do, and I felt that some some great release, and you know, I'd done what I needed to do, what, all I could do, it to sort of, you know, be open, be say this is this happened. We all know this happened. Uh, I'm not going to 
I'm not here to punish you. I'm not here to blame you. I'm just thinking this happened. I know what happened. I'd love to talk to you about it. I'd love to talk to maybe find out why it happened. Would you like to still be in my life? You know, all those things. We did all that. And um, so that was very therapeutic and cathartic. But, you know, the the negative side of it was that he never contacted either of us uh, again until, you know, until he called my brother many years later to to tell him that I was not his biological son, which is what my the story of my first memoir. Well, it didn't go well in that respect, but you know, how well can these things go? You know, uh, I think the most important thing is for the person who's doing the confronting to feel they've said all they need to say. And I, I, that certainly uh, was the case. You know, even though you're not necessarily thinking about it in these terms, there must be something also to conquering your greatest fear and having realized that even those greatest fears can be overcome. It had to have opened up so much more for you in life as well. I think it did because I stood up to my my monster, you know, to my bully, to my demons. The this, and I realized how. I guess I realized how much braver I was than my father uh, to do that, to confront those things, and to embrace it. So it definitely, I felt after that, it wasn't. I kind of feel quite a fearless person sometimes, perhaps overly so uh, but you know I can be a little reckless and but I, I actually think that that having done that having I, I sort of feel that you know the worst things that have, could possibly happen to me have already happened unless I'm going to be you know, tortured in a cave for years you know <laughs> let's hope that doesn't happen yeah fingers crossed on that one now around this time your film career really starts to take off as well you play Boris in the Bond film, Goldeneye. Definitely use your character in the video game back in the day. You were also in Emma and, of course, Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion. Now, my wife and her friends would beat me senseless if I didn't ask about the Sandy Frink character. Just how big a deal was it for you to get cast in this role? And was that dance scene as fun to shoot as the final cut made it seem? Well, it was a big deal. Uh, you know, I'd gone to Hollywood, sort of, you know, I'd done a few films like Emma and Goldeneye. I went to LA and kind of was doing the rounds, meeting the studio people and the casting people and everything. And so I, I Romeo and Michelle was a film I read quite early on when I was, you know, whoring around. And it just seemed so much wittier and cleverer and head and shoulders above all the other stuff that I was reading. So I was really keen to do it. But uh, it was a huge deal for me because it was like, you know, the male lead in a in a studio picture. Um, and, and I think actually one of the reasons that I, I mean, I was shocked that they gave it to me. I never played an American person before, you know, <laughs> I didn't even, I didn't even know what uh, Homecoming was. I, I didn't have, re- I didn't, I thought Tucson, which is where it's set. I thought Tucson was pronounced Tucson. <laughs> I mean, I was really so green and uh, suddenly I was playing this, doing this thing. So it was actually a big deal, you know, a big deal in my career because I was a sort of um, relative. I'd never done a film in America before. I feel like one of these awful people that, you know, people say to me, so tell us about when you were a struggling actor. I was like, I really wasn't. I made, you know, my <laughs> professional film, theatre and television debut whilst I was still at drama school. My first job in London was a play in the West End. My first job in America was a studio picture. And my first time I came to Broadway, it was to star in a musical. I, you know, there's things like that. That's just, that has been my life. Uh, but I understand how annoying that can seem. But so I, but the, the dance part was a lot of fun. Yeah, I really liked it. It was kind of exhausting as well because, you know, I had to do it loads of times. And, but it was just such a hoot. I, I did, it felt, it felt 
so crazy, even in that kind of anarchic kind of film, uh, in a way, it, it still felt completely bonkers that they would suddenly just have a, you know, three minute dance routine uh, at, a, at, a, at a homecoming, not a homecoming, what do you call it, a reunion. Uh, that's a great scene for sure. Who is Tonka and what did he mean to you while shooting Buddy? Oh, well, Tonka, if you can see, that's a picture of him on the wall behind me. Do you see that red? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, there, oh no, this one. That's, that's his handprint. That's a painting he did. Oh, wow. He was a chimp I did in a film that I did right after Romy Michelle called Buddy. And he was one of the chimps that was in this film. And I was sort of, my character was sort of the chimp looker after man. And many years later, Tonka, and we got on really well. We loved each other. I loved him. And he, I mean, I realized he thought I wasn't, he treated me like another chimp, which I find such a huge compliment. And, and he wanted to groom me and play with me in a sort of aggressive play way and all that stuff, you know, which is kind of dangerous, but... I, I thought it was just great that he really thought of me like that. And then um, many years later, I discovered that he was, through, through my friends at PETA, that he was in this awful sanctuary in, uh, or so-called sanctuary in Missouri, and he was sort of in a, in a cage inside and not able to exercise or socialize with other chimps, and just it was just a really sordid kind of thing. And so I started helped PETA to try and get these chimps out to this place in Florida where they have these little islands and they kind of, re-socialize them and then they can roam free on these islands and so it's just such a magical thing after they've been in these cages all this time but um since the book was written uh they have got the remaining chimps out but tonka alas was not there because he the lady had said he died and so i actually thought maybe one day i would see him again but the peter aren't sure they're sort of they're saying that maybe tonka's still alive she's hiding him and so whatever the case is, it's not good. He's either dead or he's in a place on his own, kind of, you know, not seeing other animals and not seeing, I don't know. So it's, it's, it didn't go well for poor Tonka. And that's sort of a bit of a wake-up call in terms of the way that there's no real regulation. Animals aren't used so much in, in television and film as they were. You know, there's a lot of CGI and stuff now and it doesn't, they don't need to be used in that way. And but I definitely think we have to rethink the way we use animals and circuses and films and entertainment and also then what happens to them after they become too old to, to be trained you know when they are wild animals and they can't work they just kind of get sold to dealers and like you know that guy the tiger what's his name that show we all watched last summer you know that was oh uh, joe exotic joe exotic that's an example of all the way that the, the sort of trade in wild animals and it's just all these poor things being abused and in prison so yeah poor Tonka I, I loved him and I I say I've got to kind of come to terms with the fact that I'm not going to see him again I don't root for big cats to attack and eat those who try to own them but I understand why big cats do attack those who try to own them I I'm with you on that one yeah yeah I was blown away by your description of your experience in filming on the set of Eyes Wide Shut for a week, working with the legendary Stanley Kubrick, of course. Now, he had a very cantankerous reputation on the set. What was your first interaction with Kubrick like when you got to the set of Eyes Wide Shut? Well, I'd never met him. I'd only auditioned on tape and for some producers. I'd auditioned so many times in various countries for the previous year and a half. And uh, 
So I arrived on the set. Finally, you know, it was also like they were saying, oh, you're going to shoot this next week. Oh, no, it's in three months. You know, it was, it was just crazy. The schedule was nuts. When I arrived on the set, they'd already been shooting an entire year. I thought that was the longest film shoot in cinema history. And uh, so I arrived on the set. There's Tom Cruise, there's Stanley. And I go up to him and go, hi, hey, Stanley. Uh, I'm Alan. It's nice to meet you. And he and he said, he went, you're not American. Like, really grumpy <laughs> like that. And I was like, all right. I went, no, I'm not. I'm Scottish, Stanley. And he went, you're an, you were American on the tape. And I was, it was one of these moments where I was, I was just like, oh, you know what, old man? I've auditioned for this stupid part so many times. It's, you know, and of course I'm not, of course I'm not Sc American. I'm Scottish and what the hell, six o'clock in the morning, give me a break. I was, that was what was going on inside my head. And in my, what I said was, he went, you're, you're American on the tape. And I went, yeah, yeah, that's because I'm an actor, Stanley. <laughs> And, and then he just kind of looked at Tom Cruise, kind of coughed and cleared his throat rather embarrassingly, embarrassedly. And then Stanley kind of looked at me and sort of went, hmm, let's rehearse. And so I thought, oh, I, I, I see what you are. You're one of those kind of grumpy people that they, they sort of, you know, if, if you if you react, they sort of, you know, people who do that, who have a reputation like that, tend to be like that. As, as things go on, because people behave to them that way, that cowed way, that sort of way of saying, oh, I'm so sorry, Stanley. And, you know, and of course it makes them kind of continue that style of behavior. So if you stand up to them and sort of alter that, they're kind of shocked. And then, and of course, I think he was quite respected me for doing that, for standing up to him and being, and also, frankly, for being completely right. You know, what, you're going to give me a hard time for being, for having made you believe that I was actually the character rather than somebody else? <laughs> no, Stanley. But I had a great time with him. He was really lovely. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, you say that the experience on working with him and filming Eyes Wide Shut stays with you because it confounded your expectations. How so? Well, you know, it was only one scene. It was a little part. I say that you know, normally, I'm, especially doing television, and, you know, you think things go more quickly now because of it not being on film because of doing it on video and everything. So, like, today... If that was normal in a, a normal TV or film, I would be, I would have shot that scene in a morning. I would have probably been home for lunch. Uh, and But with Stanley, he really made every little moment special and nuanced. And I, every time, we did millions of takes, but I knew exactly why I was doing it and what was the purpose of each take. And it was such fun. And I realized that, you know, there's that sort of old acting mantra, there's no small parts, only small actors. And I think that's true. I was completely rejuvenated uh, by playing that little role and doing that. It was a week I shot with Stanley, sort of playing with this scene. And I felt really, you know, my interest in acting was reignited and the, the nuance and every moment that you can change and every little tick of someone's face. I just found that, you know, he he completely uh, reignited all that for me. And I and I think, in a funny sort of way, I don't know, I was actually a bit disillusioned. I didn't quite know what I was going to do in my life. I was thought Hollywood's not for me, theatre's too scary. Mm, I'd had a few months off, really enjoyed myself, not doing very much. I was kind of in a space where I thought, maybe I'll do something else. And then I did that, and I really felt, oh, I love acting. That's fantastic. And of course, you go on to star in Cabaret on Broadway. It's a life-changing experience for you. You admit this in the book. And I'm guessing most people, when asking about the life-changing element bring up winning the Tony, and that's obviously a big deal, but you've talked about that enough, Alan. So I guess what I'm curious about is, is there another way that this role was life-changing for you that you don't get to speak about nearly enough? Um, 
Well, I guess, yeah, I suppose in a way that it was, uh, I felt very at home immediately in New York. I felt very, that I belonged somewhere for the first time in my life. And uh, that I was different, but everybody here is different. So I really felt this, I, I really felt like, oh, you know, I'd stayed in various cities, uh, London and Glasgow, and I guess a wee bit in LA, but I never felt the connection and the sort of, oh, this this is right for me. This is right that I should be here. So that was, that was exciting. I mean, it was a very overwhelming time just to be, you know, doing this show and having all these people kind of celebrating you and not quite understanding why. But I think at the, the core of it, the, bit, the biggest thing for me was sort of finding my home, like finding a place where I felt, yeah, I belonged. It was really, that was a lovely thing. How'd you end up at JLo's wedding in Italy? And what was your foot and mouth moment with her new husband at the time, Chris? <laughs> Well, she'd got, she'd actually got married a couple of days before, but I was, I was at, I was in Italy and my friend Glenda, who's an editor, a fashion editor, she said, oh, come to the, come up to Milan, you know, it's fashion week and it was the Versace show. And so, you know, they sort of said, oh, Alan's here. So they sent, invited me to the thing and sent some clothes over and the, there was a party at Donatella Versace's house on Lake Como after, and we were having fun at this party. Then all of a sudden, this table arrived in the middle of the there's a dance floor. All our drinks were taken away. And we're like, oh, is the party over? Then the champagne was put in all our hands. And then all of a sudden, a big cake was put on this table. And then all of a sudden, it was Donatella and Jennifer Lopez and her new husband were all in the middle of this room. And and, and it was and Donatella was going, to, to Jennifer and Chris. <laughs> and we're all toasting them. And I thought, oh, God, we're at their wedding reception. How did this happen? And she was sort of just, you know, it was a party, but they'd come on their honeymoon. And so she did this thing. <laughs> And then we all sort of stood looking at them and wondered what to do next. And then, you know, then, and then what was funny was that JLo came over to talk to me because I forgot that I knew her because I'd done Saturday Night Live earlier that year and she was the musical guest. And uh, it was that weird thing. I sometimes do that with famous people. I sort of forget that I know them. Um, and anyway, I, and I said this thing to, to her that I'd really like this video she'd done of one of our songs. And so she uh, said, oh, you know, my new husband, Chris, he directed that. Would you, it'd be so nice if you would go and tell him. So I was like, oh, all right. So I went over to this guy and I was like, hey, Chris, I really loved that video you did of this song. And he went, oh gosh, thanks very much. And then I said, yeah, I loved the bit when Jennifer, you know, she was sort of, it was like a washing line. And on one side of the washing line, she was like a plain peasant girl, you know, and then she went under the washing line. Suddenly she was a glam diva. And I said, I really like that way she went under the washing line. And his face kind of like, froze for a moment but and I didn't quite realize and it wasn't until I was researching this book and looking back on all that that I realized the video that I referred to he did not direct that was directed <laughs> that was directed by Herr Brits and he directed the sort of the remix or something that was the duet with somebody so I've just felt terrible all these poor thing like you know but I also thought it doesn't bode well for a relationship that's only a few or marriage that's only a few days old if the bride is telling nearly a complete stranger to go over and, you know, make her husband feel more confident. And then, of course, I fucking blew it and told him about something he hadn't actually done. So you actually worked with disgraced director Brian Singer on the set of X2 X-Men United. And sure enough, his ridiculousness was on display for you, your castmates and the rest of the crew to see and have to deal with on a daily basis. At one point, you and your fellow actors staged an intervention with him. You, Halle Berry, Patrick Stewart, Hugh Jackman, James Marsden, 
and Famke Jansen all dressed as your X-Men characters, which is an amusing thought in an otherwise serious moment. How did that intervention go? <laughs> Not well. <laughs> Not well at all. Uh, yeah, it was hilarious. because and We were sort of just getting... It was just one of these things that was kind of bungled that we were sort of... You know, this crazy stuff was happening on the set and we thought we should say something, make a joint statement to the studio. And as we are kind of working on that, he came He came down to all of where our trailers were and shouting for Hugh and production had been stopped that day because it's just a lot of weird stuff had gone on and some, like, was been a, there'd been a fight and sometimes he wouldn't come out of his trailer. And, um, and so we, um, we were all sort of, you know, getting it together about what we're going to say to the studio. Then, then Brian was suddenly in, coming into my trailer where we all were. And so we had to kind of say to him what we were doing and we did it. We told, we said our piece to him and it didn't go well. He kind of just told us all that we were, that none of us had made a decent film between us and that we were all very lucky to be working with him. And, you know, um, and then that's how Hallie had had enough and she left and, and all that happened. Well, what was awful was that, you know, the studio people came in, the lawyers came in, production was shut down. And they basically said to us, you know, we know it's terrible. We know this is really, but you know, we'll, uh, it's only a few more weeks and just don't, you know, just, and then kind of also reminded us we were under contract and da, da, da. So basically all we did, or not all we did, but our, our attempt to kind of make the situation better only prolonged it, uh, actually. And uh, so the last few weeks were just awful. And, um, and I, but you know, I look at the positive, in that and I, I realized that I don't want I made a sort of a change in the way I worked or the choices I made in my work I just I don't want to be a part of that system that condones and validates and enables uh, you know abusive work practices and people to sort of not be respectful and not to let people on set have a dignified working environment and I felt like really dirty that I was sort of a part of that system and that was going on just be- and, and that it continued unabated just because they knew the film was going to make billions of dollars. So I kind of, after that, sort of steered away from those kind of films. You know, I haven't done, didn't do any more of those sort of, I did one more sort of big film, but, uh, you know, big sort of action film like that. I, I just went into kind of smaller films and TV and stuff after that. I mean, never say never, but I just, it was a conscious decision to not feel dirty about going to work. Yeah, that's understandable. All right, last couple of questions here, Alan. Starting with your husband, Grant. What does Grant mean to you? Uh, well, you know, he's my sort of, he's truly my life partner. I think he's he's my, uh, I can't imagine. I'm, I'm so, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine not being with him, but also I can't imagine that there's anything that could be a problem for us anymore. I, you know what I mean? I think we're sort of in such a space that we've, I feel we can work out, we could work anything out and just, I feel, yeah, it's a really open and strong relationship. And also he's, he makes me laugh and we have a great time together. You know, we, most of the pandemic, we were just alone in our place in the Catskills. And I just, I would have, I would have, I mean, I wish we were still there. I wish that was still our life. So that's a good sign. I suppose that we could, you know, actually liked being alone with him for months and months and months. <laughs> I know that was not the case with some couples. <laughs> it's a pretty good gauge. And there are some couples who were stuck together and eventually had to call it quits when they realized this is way too much time with that other person. All right, last question now. In the epilogue, you admit that you did more research on yourself in writing this book than any character you've ever played. What was the most profound thing you discovered about yourself throughout that process? 
um, I felt such compassion for myself. I felt really, I sort of thought, oh, you poor thing. Like I saw myself flailing and I saw myself repeating patterns uh, that, you know, from this vantage point looking back and I saw why and I saw what I was trying to do. I was trying to fix people. I was trying to fix angry people because I basically, you know, I thought when I was a little boy that I, it was my fault and I could fix my dad. So I, I realized that shadow of that uh, went much longer into my life than I'd realized actually. So that's, I think that was the biggest revelation for me was this stuff. Um, even in my thirties when everything was sort of seemingly great and all that stuff, you know, there was times I just thought, oh, you poor little thing, you know. Hmm. And also like things that seemed quite far apart, you know, but breakups or traumatic things were actually much closer together uh than i remembered that was weird too it's funny researching yourself it's also great having the internet because you know it's it's being famous and having the internet means you can practically track where you are all the time <laughs> sadly also that's the thing like a lot of the pictures you see at parties and things you know what i think silly is a lot of the clothes i wore are clothes that i only you know i would just borrow them for this event and they give them back so i would think where's the where's that i've never what, what am i wearing so you have no kind of compass to actually what you're doing or what because you know it's almost like you know that thing where you cut the costume out of someone you stick their head on it that's what it's like and you just see yourself in these situations you think i have no idea i have no recollection of that whatsoever but i must have been there because that person does indeed look very like me he is alan coming a tony award-winning actor of stage and screen singer activist and writer his newest book is titled baggage tales from a fully packed life you can get it now wherever books are sold. Alan, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this funny, entertaining, and heartfelt book. Thank you so much. Nice to talk to you. Join me next time when I speak with psychiatrist and author Anna Lemke on Dopamine Nation, finding balance in the age of indulgence. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.